Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. This is the Golf Under Par Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy McCullough. We are on a journey to find the information that's going to help you play the best golf of your life. Join us now as we dive in. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you know I'm looking for golfers that want to improve their health, fitness, and performance. I'm putting together a 12 to 16 week program for golfers during this offseason. I guarantee that if you put in the work, you will gain 10 plus yards. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, then shoot me an email at jeremy at uphealthperformance.com or follow the link in the show notes. Thank you. Welcome, everybody, to the Golf Under Par podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy McCullough, here with a very special guest, Mike Boyle. All right, He's a legendary strength coach. He's somebody that has been in the industry and has really led the industry into what we know of it today. Uh, he's an owner of Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning up in Massachusetts, outside of the Boston area, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, he's an author and a writer. He's written numerous articles. You can find a lot of his information on strengthcoach.com. And you can find his book, New Functional Training for Sports. Welcome, Mike. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. I love doing this. We love having people like you on, all right? (laughs) So I always... I always ask all my guests, you know, what's your experience or what's your background with golf? You know, it's interesting. My background with golf, I don't play. It's very, very interesting. I started training golfers basically because I had friends that golfed. And the interesting thing is that friends started coming back and saying, my God, I'm killing the ball. I'm crushing the ball. My drive is going, you know, X amount of distance further. And, uh, and I thought that was interesting, but obviously we, I trained, hockey players was sort of our, our primary audience at that time. Still obviously rotational athlete. I mean, when you really think about slap shot golf swing, I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty closely related. And so the things that we were doing for training seemed to be helping golf. I actually did um, years ago, I did a DVD this is how long ago it was on power development for golf and Greg Rose and Titles performance Institute picked up on that and then picked up on joint by joint. So my teachings actually is very central to what Titleist Performance Institute teaches. I've gone to the, I've been a speaker at the World Golf Summit. I am actually twice, I think I've made the top 50 golf fitness professionals in the U.S. in, in these magazine issues, although I don't golf and I would not consider myself to be a golf fitness professional. But I've sort of kind of backdoored my way into that golf world, mainly because Greg is really smart and seeks the best information. So he looks to guys like Greg Cook, who I also don't think golfs, and guys like me, and says, hey, these are guys that can really help us with what we're doing when it comes to the idea of training golfers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's what's so important is, you know, finding other backgrounds and reaching out to different people to, to have that. So, um, and you don't have to be a golfer in order to understand how to make somebody good at hitting a ball. No, I don't. I absolutely don't think you do because I, I know I'm not. I mean, I started one of my my only real golf client was a kid named 
James Driscoll, who became a pretty good tour player and is still playing, won the, I think he won the U.S. Amateur. And he was uh, actually a friend. His brother was a friend of mine. And he came and trained with us for a couple of years. And then once he got on the tour, stopped. But, uh, and then I trained another guy named Jeff Zisk, who uh, I think was just moving into the senior tour, was one of the better New England guys. And uh, I've trained a few females, you know, but it's not something, it's something more that I do for fun than I would say is, uh, um, you know, it's certainly not an income stream, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So just real fast, I know you, at least I've always heard you professing this functional training. And so I wanted to just briefly touch on kind of the differences between a functional training style versus maybe like a more traditional style. Well, it's, it's really interesting because I think that's a really good question. So I wrote, my first book was called functional training for sports, but there's like a backstory to functional training for sports. And effectively what happened is human kinetics has these guys that they call acquisitions editors, acquisitions editors go out and solicit people to write books. And this acquisition editor sent me a, I don't know, it could actually have been, it was long, far enough back where it might've been a letter. Like I might've gotten a piece of mail asking me this question, but it said, we think you'd be an ideal candidate to write a book on functional training. We want to publish a book called functional training for sports. And I guess it was email because I responded back fairly quickly and said, I don't even, I don't know if I know what functional training is. I don't think I'd be the right guy for the book. And his response was, we think what you do is functional training. To which I then responded, it was like a tennis match, you know, or ping pong or something. I said, well, you're saying I can write whatever I want and you'll call the book functional training for sports. And he said, basically, yes, you just got to write what you think about training. We're going to call it functional training for sports. So I, the idea to me, functional training is just training that makes sense. Functional training, you know, you're a PT. Functional training is looking at what we know about anatomy and applying it to training. I always say functional training is the application of functional anatomy to training. If you abbreviate those two things, you get functional training. And when you start to really understand how the body works, the body's not a bilateral mechanism. It doesn't, it's not very effective working two legs at a time, sort of in the sagittal plane. Um, Basically rabbits work that way. There's not too many things that work that way. Rowers work that way. There's a very small, small subset of people who would be um, sort of purely bilateral sagittal people. Everybody else is, is unilateral. And as you said, you know, when you look at golf or hockey or whatever, there's that transverse plane component to it, the, the rotational component. But we looked at that and thought, well, that occurs. I mean, there's a rotational component to sprinting. There's a rotational component really to everything. I mean, the idea that um, if singles sculling is probably one of the few things where you could say, hey, there really isn't much of a rotational component to this. Powerlifting, not much of a rotational component. Um, Olympic lifting, but we were so heavily influenced by people in strength sports that we thought we thought that what they did was training, and we just didn't think very much. And then people like me and maybe Mark Verstegen and some other guys came along and started saying, "Hey, this doesn't really make all that much sense." We're we're kind of it's like you know copying the guy next to you on the test, even though you know he has the wrong answers. You're looking at him and saying, yeah, I know all his answers are wrong, but I'm going to copy him anyway. And that's kind of what we did with powerlifting and with Olympic lifting. We just, you could almost see people's programs. And when I started out, there were three types of programs. There were bodybuilding programs, there were powerlifting programs, and there were Olympic lifting programs. There were no functional training for athlete programs. And I guess we started to develop those. We started to look at this and say, wait a second, you know, there's a lot of 
unilateral stuff that's going on here. There's a lot of, um, you know, we started looking at the antis. There's a lot of anti-extension and anti-lateral flexion and all these things as we started to understand anatomy that we started to look at and think, wow, there's a lot of things that we're either doing wrong and or not doing. Yeah, yeah. So that's very interesting that, that I've always I've always kind of attributed you to as the uh, kind of functional training guru kind of a thing, just leading that kind of movement, but you didn't even plan on doing that. You just... No, I didn't think that was what I was doing at all. And to be perfectly honest, I just thought that... I thought what I was doing was trying to make training better, like looking at training and saying, wait a second. Uh, Cause I, you know, and, and I, but I was very heavily influenced in the beginning by guys like Vern Gambetta and Gary Gray and, you know, guys who started just going to conferences and talking about common sense, like, wait a second, you know, um, Gary Gray's first course, I think was called um, something like everything changes when the foot hits the ground. And he started talking about just this idea of functional anatomy and how, we were starting, they were starting to teach us that, Hey, the anatomy that you learned in school, what we now jokingly would refer to as dead person anatomy, dead person anatomy, wasn't real anatomy. And that there was this live person anatomy that when my foot hits the ground, my quadricep doesn't extend my knee and my hamstring doesn't flex my knee and my gastroc doesn't cause me to plantar flex. They all basically eccentrically resist flexion. And you kind of ended up where you're in this world, like, wait a second. So it's basically eccentrically resist flexion, concentrically create extension. Every muscle does the same thing. And in some ways it got really simple. I always said the anatomy test got a lot easier because every muscle function was basically the same. You could just answer the same answer for every question and you'd get it right. But then there you know, were stabilizers and neutralizers and then there was sort of understanding the core and there was all these other things. I mean, there wasn't even a core when I started. You did abs, you know, you did sit-ups and crunches to, to work your abs. And we hadn't even thought about this idea of core or, you know, to give credit where credit is due. So, you know, guys like Paul Check started coming out and talking about, um, I still remember he wrote an article called um, Back Strong and Beltless. And he started talking about transverse abdominus and hoop pressure and all of these things. And I remember just thinking, I was always good at reading stuff and knowing what was true. So I would look at it and think, Oh, that's true. He's right about that. They didn't teach us that in school, but that makes perfect sense when you start to look anatomically at how we are made. And so all this stuff just started to get incorporated into what we were doing. But suddenly we became, uh, you know, almost guilt by association. We became functional training guys. And then we got lumped in with the same guy who's got you like standing on the BOSU ball, you know, with your eyes closed with a dumbbell, you know, waving it around over your head. And for a long time, that's what people thought. People would come and watch my athletes train and they'd see us front squat and they'd see us Olympic lift and they'd see us bench press and they'd just be like, you could, you're not a functional training guy. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know what I am. I just know that I'm a strength coach who's trying to get my athletes better. And these are the things that we're going to incorporate. Very interesting. So I guess the next question I had is why is functional training important for sports performance? Um, kind of almost throw that question out the window with, with the answers here in the previous where functional training is just smart training. So I guess what is smart training for sports performance? I mean, smart training for sport performance. And it's a really good question. It's looking at the sport and then trying to come up with exercises that make sense for that sport, trying to figure out, okay, what are, what is the person doing? And then how do I help them do that? So, you know, one of the things that you realize, even if you think about golf, like some people say, well, golf is bilateral because 
your, you know, your other foot doesn't really come off the ground. You know, very few guys happy Gilmore, the drive, you know, where they're going to, you know, kind of karaoke into it and try to hit it as far as they can. But it's still a, in, in my mind, a unilateral weight transfer sport. It's still a sport that requires really good lower body power because you've got to have that strength on the, you know, on if you're right-handed golfer on your right leg to initially create that contact with the ground that's going to at some point make the ball move. And so in some ways I would look at it and say all sport training is the same with the like few notable exceptions that I said, rowing might be one notable exception where you look and think, okay, they're very unique, you know, using both legs bilaterally at the same time all the time. But you take rowers out of the picture and I go in sort of the opposite direction and say almost everybody else is the same. And so unilateral training makes more sense. Core training makes more sense. But even the simple stuff, you know, pushing and pulling and balancing, pushing and pulling. And I guess just like not being a dumbass. That's the thing. Like not trying to turn somebody into a bodybuilder or a powerlifter or Olympic lifter. Like I see people all the time talking about, you know, West Side. And I'm like, West Side is a powerlifting program that's particularly made for powerlifters. And it's designed, whether you agree or disagree, and I don't know, I don't, I'm not necessarily a West Side fan, but it's like, it's designed to get three lifts higher. We wouldn't look at that. I would never even think that was a goal for us anymore in terms of, I don't really care how much somebody can bench press. I don't care how much somebody can deadlift. I definitely don't care how much somebody can squat because we don't even do it anymore. But, but I do think that there are certain requisite amounts of strength that are going to be really beneficial. And we've got to be able to kind of, you know, look at that and say, okay, how much strength does this person need? Are they, you know, we, I wrote an article at one point called how strong is strong enough. And, you know, that's one of the things we have to look at how strong is strong enough. Is it just, is it, is it, you know, but then people say stupid things like, Oh, well, you know, you got to be able to back squat double body weight. And I'm like, I don't know if you really got to be able to back squat double body weight, but on the flip side, there's been some really interesting unilateral stuff that I found in the last say six months that has equated single leg squat strength to uh, double leg squat strength. And so this guy, Alex Natera, who's an Australian rules football coach, um, did it. It actually was a poster presentation at the UK SCA that somebody pointed me towards, but they did force plate work. And basically what he said is that a body weight single leg squat is equal to a body weight back squat. A body weight, a single leg squat with 50% of your body weight is equal to a double body weight back squat a single leg squat with 100% of your body weight is equal to a triple body weight back squat. So when we suddenly have numbers for unilateral exercises, it makes the bilateral exercises that much less significant because we don't need them anymore because I can, you know, someone can look and say, well, how strong you need to be. And in my mind, I'd say, well, you should be able to single leg squat with 50% of your body weight and external load. Mm -hmm. If you can do that, then you're probably strong enough. And then we can worry about other quantities very few people are strong enough. So you need to worry about other quantities. You know, then when you get into, if you're talking about the adult recreational golfer, that's another animal altogether in terms of you look at that guy and think, well, it would be really great if you could do a squat and touch your toes. Like that would, those would be two really cool things for you to be able to do because most adult recreational golfers are these just like stiffs made of cement, you know, who have no hip internal rotation, no hip external rotation. And they, they're what I would classify as lumbar golfers. You know, they're people who are forced to use their low back 
to try to hit the ball. And as a result, they're always sore. They're, they have nothing. It's like, you know, what does a guy who pitches, um, you know, on his company softball team have in common with Rory McIlroy? And you're like, um, nothing, right? Nothing. You know, what does that guy have in common with, you know, whoever's pitching in the World Series tonight for the Dodgers? Nothing. And, you know, so what does that guy need versus what does the other guy need? I, you know, in some ways you think, well, all the same stuff provided there's some prerequisites that we're going to meet. Like, can this guy move? You know, could he get out of the way of a moving bus? And in a lot of times with recreational golfers, they can't. So I don't even know if I'd look at, I don't know if I'd look at the recreational golfer as a rotational athlete, as much as I'd look at them as a physical reclamation project. Yeah. And I I actually agree a lot. I think there's, for those that follow anything like, golf fitness on Instagram or, um, or on Twitter. And you see all these things and they're all talking about, you know, how to generate more power and all these things are getting into like Olympic lifts. And I was like, okay, that applies to, you know, your, your high school golfers that want to get to college and then college golfers that want to get to the pros and the pros is to just maintain and, or maybe further improve. But then the majority of you know, the golfers that pick up the game in their thirties and forties and just work at a desk job, that's not, that's not what they need. They need like you're saying, you know, the mobility and like this baseline strength. And once we have that, then maybe we can focus on some of that other stuff. Yeah. Well, I think in, in even some of the stuff, like I look at adults should never Olympic lift. It's, you know, teaching an adult to Olympic lift is like teaching someone to shoot a gun and having them aim at their foot. You know what I mean? It's like, you're just asking for somebody to get injured, but you know, we're such a sort of, we're a real copycat field. It's just our nature to, to copy what we see. So if we see, you know, the latest uh, tour guide, you know, whoever the tour guy is that's winning, then suddenly, and I can't think what's the guy's name. It just, he gained like 20 pounds this year. And then all of a sudden started Bryce winning. DeChambeau. Yeah. DeChambeau. Okay. So he wins, you know, he gains 20 pounds. He starts winning. So all of a sudden everybody should gain 20 pounds. And you don't, if you really knew the backstories, you might not, be so inclined i don't know the backstory in his particular case but you start looking at tiger woods and realizing like here's a guy who's sort of obsessive pursuit of greatness you know ruined his body and you you can't say it ruined his career because he had an amazing career but from a longevity standpoint he probably would have lasted a lot longer had he not been you know taking going on runs with a weight vest on and you know he's he's sort of admitted to doing some really dumb stuff that people let him do which is even dumber to me. I mean, I look at myself and think a big part of my job with my high value clients is often to protect them from themselves because they're going to be like everybody else in terms of they're looking at everybody and thinking, well, what's this guy do? What does LeBron do? You know, LeBron's balancing on, you know, air filled discs and, you know, juggling kettlebells and maybe that's what I need to do. And no one just wants to look and think maybe this guy's just a genetic freak and that's why he's really good at what he does. And, and, he's, and he's dedicated and he spends money on his training. Like there's a lot of common denominators, but the common denominator probably isn't the balanced disc and the upside down kettlebell. The common denominator probably is much simpler than that. And is um, just the fact, one, that he's incredibly, extremely genetically gifted. And two, that he puts the time into training. The average genetically gifted professional athlete does not. I would say, you know, if you went and looked at the tour, the average tour player, probably plays a lot and trains a little and isn't probably doing exactly what they should be doing in a lot of areas. And so the guy who does decide, Hey, I'm going to really take this serious. That guy ends up having a distinct advantage because 
um, his peers are are probably not doing that. People love we have this uh, this mythical view. I call it the Sports Illustrated effect. This mythical view of professional athletes as these people who are totally dedicated to their craft. And the reality is, professional athletes probably exist in the same ratio as normal people. If normal people are 80-20, professional athletes are 80-20. 20% of those guys are really dedicated to their craft and they, you know, worry about everything that they eat and every training session that they make and all these other things. And the other 80 are somewhere below that in some point on the bell curve, you know, from John Daly to Bryson DeChambeau, you know, we've got this bell curve of people and, you know, one guy's on one extreme end, the other guy's on the other extreme end. And if you really look and say, well, what was the difference between John Daly and DeChambeau, you'd say not that much, right? I mean, they were both pretty good golfers. You know, they both could hit the ball really far. Yet, you know, one guy was notorious for his not taking care of himself. And the other guy was, you know, obsessive about taking care of himself. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's very true. I think I just saw right before we got on this, uh, it was a UFC guy and they were asking him, how do you, how do you train your explosiveness? And he's like, you can't train it. It's genetic. Yeah. You know, which is, again, you know, is probably like a, a relative lie, right? You'd look at it and say, you can't train it. And yes, it's genetic. <laughs> so um, I was talking to somebody earlier today and I said, it's sort of like school. You could probably raise everything a letter grade. Meaning if you have a guy who's a D explosiveness guy, you might be able to get him to be a C. You know, if you've got a guy who's a B, you can get him to be an A. If you've got a guy who's an A, there might be not much you can do to change that because he's already, you know, when you're in the top 1% of something, marginal gains are marginal. <laughs> It's like people say, I always say YouTube, um, Usain Bolt strength training. You'd be horrified. I mean, you'd watch his strength training. And if you watch his strength training, you'd say, wow, if I trained him, he'd run really fast. And then I'd look at you and be like, but he runs faster than everybody else already. So how much faster would your training actually make him? And the, the answer is probably not much faster because he's already there. Like there are, there are finite limits, you know, like, no one drives the ball 400 yards, right? It's like, you know, there just aren't, you know, there aren't there those guys who are like, oh, I got to take a little off this because, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to overshoot the green. Uh, yeah. and, and I think that's the part that people miss because, as I said, that Sports Illustrated effect, the writers love to create these mythical beings that, in fact, are generally pretty human. Yeah, very interesting. So moving on on the, the rotational athlete and then generating power and speed, you know, what are, what are you found to be some foundations to creating, whether that be uh, injury resistance to, to the, the repetitive movement or to generating that, that we'll say power and speed? Well, I think one, you have to have, you know, it, I'm a, I'm a great cook guy. And, uh, you know, so I look at, it, I think, you, you know, the balance between stability and mobility is a sort of delicate dance. So you've got to have the requisite stability and the requisite mobility. And what generally happens for us is we choose to look at it in a, as an either or situation. You know, either I'm a stability guy or I'm a mobility guy. And we get mobility guys and who get people too mobile. Too mobile is as bad as not mobile in terms of rotational, in terms of really anything, but particularly in terms of rotational sports. Um, I, I've started putting in a picture. You're probably too young, but I, I have a picture of uh, Linda Blair in the exorcist 
And I always tell people, you know, when you talk about mobility, there's a reason if I turn to my left, I can't see behind me. All of our spinal structure is deliberately constrained. It has ranges of motion which are considered safe for living, right? Right. But there are some people who just think, well, oh, if I could just get more, like if I could spin my head around and see behind me, that would be really good. And like, no, you'd probably be dead, right? That would, but, you know, we see that with people, you know, in, in the lower back and in the T-spine. It's like you need enough mobility and then you need to know where that mobility is actually coming from. Most people who train rotational athletes think about spinal mobility when in fact we should probably be thinking more about spine stability and spine integrity and about hip mobility because golfing is really hip internal external rotation much more than it is some degree of spinal rotation. Then you get into sort of, okay, what's the function of the core muscles? This is where you get into the functional training idea and the core muscles, the, the analogy that I've started to use for the core muscles is I imagine the core muscles like the lines on a sail in a sailboat. So, you know, you've got a sail and you've got a mast, but without the lines and without the, the right amount of tension, you can't harness the power of the wind, right? So when we start looking at core muscles, we've got to realize that, again, they only have a certain ability to lengthen and shorten. And in a lot of cases, their job is not, you know, if you read like Sarman or Porterfield DeRosa or things like that, their job is really prevention of rotation much more than creation of rotation. So they're much more like those lines on the sail in terms of they're preventing these things from sort of flapping in the breeze. So you've got to train for stability. You've got to have requisite mobility. And then you've got to look at the neural part and start to train. People say, you know, rotary training like throw medicine balls. You know, I mean, there's no easier way to develop rotary power than throwing medicine balls. It's so simple, so safe. But now it's sort of become a little more commonplace and people are looking at different ways. I like the speed stick idea. I think that that from a golf perspective in the right hands might end up being a really good tool and might end up being a really bad tool in the wrong hands. But I think if you get someone who can actually move and then try to measure how fast they're actually moving, that's probably going to be beneficial for them. If you get someone who can't move efficiently and you get them to try to see how fast they can move they're probably going to hurt themselves so a lot of times you know I, I i'm an analogist if there is such a thing but i always say you know it's it's about the tools and you know you look and think a chainsaw is a really powerful tool but it's not good for molding do you know what i mean so you know you've got to think like okay what tool am i bringing to this particular task and, you know, I might be in a situation where I need like a fine Japanese saw as opposed to a chainsaw to cut the piece of wood that I want to cut. And if I bring too big a tool to the party, I make a mess. And if I bring exactly what I need, then I probably get some really good, precise kind of changes. So I think in some ways it's, um, I said in the, I think in the first chapter of functional training for sports, you know, I said functional training is training that makes sense. And I've also said, uh, you know, numerous times, common sense is not very common, uh, which is, a, it's actually, a, um, I think it's a Mark Twain quote, but I'm not, it may be Ben Franklin, one of the two, but it's that idea. So we just have to look at stuff and realize, okay, who am I working with? As you said, you know, am I working with a, a college golfer who's a really good athlete who wants to get on a tour? You know, James Driscoll, when he was coming out of Virginia, just a really good athlete. He was a kid that, you know, played hockey in, in high school and, you know, went to UVA and played golf, but could have probably played like, you know, division three sports at 
you know, in, in a, probably a couple of other sports, realistically, if he did, dedicated the time, or do I have some 50 year old guy who I, you know, I have to treat, um, I have another great analogy. One of my friends said, think of them as a beer bottle broken with the label still on it. You know what I mean? Like the label's the only thing holding the bottle together, you know, and, and, you know, so, uh, you know, I'm looking at, I mean, those are very different quantities that we're going to get from a training perspective. So the same, the training that might be really good for that young collegiate golfer is disastrous for the 50 year old duffer who, you know, really can't move. So I guess it's, it's really a matter of kind of looking and saying, okay, who, who do I have? One, one size here is not clearly not going to fit all. So, yeah, I, exactly. The, so in your experience, what basically it comes down to what you're looking at and, and who, who you're looking at um, for, for training that and, now, what, what, what recommendations do you give to a rotational athlete that wants to kind of min- minimize risk? When you mentioned earlier the, the low back golfer, you know, that uses all the back and their sore, back sore. So what kind of things can, would you recommend in, in that instance? Uh, well, one, you know, no sit-ups, no crunches. We are a very anti-flexion group. So I would consider us, I guess, McGill people if you were looking at how this is going to be approached. So that would be one thing. The other thing is no rotary stretching. I don't want to, I think it's a mistake to try to increase rotational range of motion. And I, you see a lot of golfers, you know, using different stretch machines and trying to get themselves so they can rotate better. But what people don't understand, you understand, but the average person doesn't is that what stretches first is what is least stiff. So, um, you know, I always use, I, I show people, I call it the three band analogy and I, I tie three bands together. One of them's really thick and two of them are really thin. And I said, you know, if I want to stretch the thick band, I have to stretch the thin bands really, really far until they produce enough tension to start to produce a change in length in the thick band. That's how stretching is in the body. So, you know, sometimes when I think I'm going after something, I go after something else. And usually what gives lumbar tends to, to rotate when we don't want it to. And we end up over-rotating some vertebrae that don't have much rotational range of motion. Your lumbar spine range of motion is about, you know, two, two and a half degrees per vertebrae. So if I'm doing kind of aggressive forced rotational stretching, a lot of times I can make myself feel really significantly worse by attempting to do something that I think is good. So I think a big part of it is looking at stretching and saying, okay, I want to stretching. I want you to go after your hips. I want you to go after your T-spine. I want you to go after areas. You know, that's where that joint by joint idea came up, came about in terms of, we know that hips can generally be more mobile with most people. We know that T-spine can generally be more mobile with most people. We know that lumbar spine is designed bigger vertebrae made to be stable, not an area where we want to be trying to gain range of motion. So, um, you know, and we know, like I said, we know that, you know, cervical, we know you're limited to about 90 realistically speaking. Um, and we've got to respect those ranges. Then we've got to know when we get to acceptable ranges to stop. We've got to know that again, more mobility is not better. We've got to look at certain things and say, okay, you know, how much internal rotation do I want? How much external rotation do I want? How much extension do I want? There, these are all things that, you know, it doesn't help a golfer to be able to do a split. Let's put it that way. Right. But you know, when you look at some of the mobility people, they're going to look at this and think that, 
they're going to, um, you know, just continue to pursue mobility for mobility's sake. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's where I think TPI has done a great job of, you know, kind of establishing, Hey, here's some guidelines on what is an acceptable range of motion for a golf yeah. in particular. I mean, Greg, Greg is one of the smartest people that I know and one of the best speakers that I know and one of the most organized. I mean, he's an, he's an absolute freaking working machine. I've never seen anybody that, that can work like he works and it never stops. The mind never turns off, but he's done a really good job. He's all he wants to do is take the best information from the best people and then get it to initially the golf community. Now he's working, he's gotten smart. He's working in the baseball community, starting to realize that, okay, I can incorporate this with just about every rotational athlete that there is out there. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, I want to honor your time here. And so i got a few wrap-up questions that I ask all the guests on here. So first off, uh, what is your favorite golf or sport memory? Um, I was, my, favorite, my favorite golf memory would be non-existent because there really um, are none. But um, my favorite sport memory probably was our first national championship in 1995 at Boston University in ice hockey because I had always wanted to be involved in a team that won a national championship and to, to get to that point the first time around was a really big deal. So I think that's probably my, my best personal sports memory. Right. Cool. Um, was that men's or women's? That was men's it was Providence 1995. You know, it was one of those, we had, we had been in the national championship game, I think twice or three times before that in the nineties. So in like, maybe 91, 92, 93, 94, we had played in two championship games and lost them both. So if nothing else, there was a tremendous sense of relief. Like, Oh my God, we finally did this. You know, we got this far. We, we had a game. We like still remember talk about not great memories, but we lost in triple overtime to um, Northern Michigan, I think eight to seven uh, to lose the national championship out in, uh, in Detroit. I think we were, I can't even remember where we were, but, and you know, so it was nice to, to win one. Awesome. So what's your favorite exercise or drill to improve your, your, your health, your personal health or you know, performance or whatever? Uh, for me, my personal, my favorite personal exercise or drill for my is uh, airdyne or assault bike. And I'm like, you know, I think if you said favorite two mile time trial, I love the two mile time trial. It is a, it's just an absolute grind. If you know, it's one of those from a fitness test standpoint, if you're good at it, you're in good shape. If you're not good at it, you're not. So I like that. Very cool. Uh, what's one takeaway you want listeners to apply to from this lesson or from this discussion? Um, I think to understand the idea that functional training isn't, isn't any different than normal training. Functional training is just, I, in my mind, smart training that makes sense. I would look at, if we looked at the, the idea of, you know, two ends of the spectrum, functional training, dysfunctional training, I would see dysfunctional training as you know, bilateral squatting, deadlifting, you know what I mean? How much can you bench? You know, that to me would be dysfunctional training and functional training would be looking and saying, Hey, wait a second, what do I know about anatomy and how can I, how can I apply that? So I, you know, instead of imitating some other sport. All right. And last one is who would you recommend I get on the podcast? Who would you, that's interesting. Golf, John D'Amico, my, my roommate from college, John is a golf fitness pro down in, uh, uh, Naples area and really interesting guy in the sense that um, 
got into physical therapy, ladies, a physical therapist like you, um, deals a lot with seniors. Uh, I jokingly, you know, we've been best friends since college. So we've been best friends for um, going on 40 years. And it's, I had told him a couple of years ago when, you know, he was thinking about, you know, he had like to do some speaking. I'd like to do some writing. And one of the things that I said as well, I have this theory that if you just get on social media and begin declaring yourself the expert in something within six months, you will be the expert in that. I said, so you should start writing and talking about, um, you know, what you're doing right now, which is training senior golfers after hip replacement. And within a year, he spoke a year later at the world golf fitness summit on training senior golfers with hip replacements, because it's the bad, it's sort of the bad side of social media, you know, that it's the loudest voice thing. If you're out there saying, Hey, I know a lot about training golfers with who've had hip replacements. But the reason I asked him, I had a friend of mine who had a bilateral hip replacement and I looked it up on the internet to see what, you know, I'm like, what are people doing for rehab? And it was so bad Mm. because it's old people and no one cares. That's what you realize. It's like, Oh, this is, rehab for old people that no one really cares if they get back to any sort of real level of function. I mean, the stuff that they, you know, lying, you know, leg lifts. And I mean, it was abysmally bad. I was like, John, you got to write some better stuff than this. So John, John would be my candidate right there. Yeah. And you're so true on, you know, people just not caring on on some of this. I remember uh, when I was still in physical therapy school, I shadowed, you know, this, this uh, sports doc and, and lady came in and she was very, very, um, very athletic or very, very, you know, active is the word I'm looking for. And she was playing tennis and all this other stuff. And she's like, I'm having this problem with this. And he's like, I just get a brace. Yeah, that, that was it. And he's just like nothing else after that. I was like, really? Yeah. Like, <laughs> this lady's not- athletic. Let her, let her do something athletic or active. And yeah. I mean, you know, you know, physical therapy, exercise, you know, get her, you know, recommend a personal training. There's so many things that you could do for these people. But, and I tell some of my older clients like that all the time, you know, when you go to the doctor, don't let them like, I'm going to be 61 in a couple of weeks. I don't want to be treated like a 61 year old when I go to the doctor. Because physically I am not 61 years old. I am chronologically 61 years old. And so, you know, but sometimes there's just this assumption that, Hey, you're kind of old shit happens, you know, you know, kind of figure it out, live with it sort of approach. Uh, but I think the flip side of that sometimes now is that there's, there's too quick a rush to, to surgery and joint replacement and all this other stuff. So we've got to, you know, it's another area where we have to perfect the balance of, um, you know, not, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater and realizing that as, you know, I mean, it's great for you because you're a physical therapist, but just saying to somebody, Hey, you know, find a good, a good, and this is the other word, a good physical therapist, because there are good and bad physical therapists and they are way more bad than good. And I think that's the same in every field, but physical therapy, particularly, I still see people that are doing physical therapy. Like it's, you know, it's like, we're going to party like it's 1999. You know, sometimes I look and I'm like, are you serious? This is, this is your idea of how you're going to get these people better. Yep. Yep. I, I know exactly what you mean. And I tell everybody that I see it's like, there's good and bad and everything. And um, you know, if you find a good one then you'll, you'll know it because it's going to be different than probably some of the, the, the typical stuff you think. And I get people come in and they're like, Oh yeah, I, I rode the bike for a little while. And, uh, they, they rubbed their, rubbed my back for some. And that's what I can remember doing. I'm like, that's what you remember doing. Hopefully you did more than that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hopefully. I mean, that's, you know, but then they look, they go, you know, they put a hot pack on it 
And then when I was done after I worked out, they threw some ice on it. And, you know, and then I did see, you know, I, I still get people like ACL people talking about doing straight leg raises. And I'm looking, I'm going like, like straight leg raises. I'm, I'm like, you know, I mean, maybe like week one, you know what I mean? When you can't do anything else, but, but beyond that, I mean, that's not a very useful exercise for somebody who's had knee surgery. I don't care what surgery you had, but I mean, you get, we get it all the time. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And we get the stuff, you know, you know, don't exercise, don't run, don't jump, don't, don't do whatever, as opposed to trying to think about what effective modifications would be for people. All right, Mike. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, before we end today, where, where can people go to find more about you or support what you're doing? Well, me, like I said, strengthcoach.com. If people want, like, that's where I am like day to day. I'm on there every day. I'm answering questions. If I write an article, I post it on that site. It is a paid membership site. So the people understand that it's not free, but because, you know, I think we want, we've got a really good community of intelligent people who want to discuss training in an intelligent way and in a, a sort of comfortable, supportive way. It's not the typical internet forum where people are calling each other stupid and, and, you know, yelling and screaming and cut typing in all caps. So it's a pretty cool place. And, um, Twitter, I'm mboyle1959. I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Michael underscore Boyle1959. And I, you know, I'm the same, I'm pretty active on both of those um, social media platforms. All right. Well, that's it for this episode of the Golf Under Park Highcast. We'll have all of Mike's information in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Mike, for coming on. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Hopefully you've enjoyed this content on the go. If you found it helpful, please share with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. This allows us to reach more golfers just like you that want to play under par. Do you want to be stronger and healthier? Well, I've got a resource, Golf Fitness Tips. It's a free Facebook group where we talk about how to take care of our bodies so that we can play more golf, we can play golf longer in life, and we can play better on the course. If that interests you, then check out the link below or search for Golf Fitness Tips on Facebook.